Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the markets continued to rally worldwide. The Dow Jones back above 18,000, I think finishing out the week at 18,057, with the NASDAQ just shy of 5,049.95. But the real action was overseas. You had record highs and like the German DAX. Uh, finished uh, the last day of the week up another 200 points, 12,374. Much more action in Asia. The Hang Seng, I think, was up maybe 8% uh, on the week and finished uh, the last day up of the week up another 328 points. But huge moves all around the world in the stock market. Everybody is riding a sea of liquidity. The dollar continued to rebound. You know, the rebound started after... The dollar failed the hold, or the euro rather, failed the hold above 110 following the worst U.S. non-farm payroll report in about two years. And the euro weakened all week, and it finished the week just under 106 uh, dollars to the euro. And the dollar was relatively strong against other European currencies. It did weaken a bit against the yen. Uh, later in the week. And I, I think, you know, maybe the Aussie and Canadians were relatively flat but volatile throughout the week. On the other hand, gold had a very interesting week. It finished back above 1200 In fact, it finished Friday strong. Gold was up about $14. It closed at 1207 What was interesting about the strength of gold is that the dollar had one of its best weeks uh, in months. The dollar was up, I think, 3%, better than 3%. On the week, you know, closing the week near the highs, 
Yet gold prices rose despite that, which means in terms of other currencies, of course, gold was much stronger. In fact, in euros, gold was very close to a two-year high. We closed at uh, 11, just about 11.39 euros. 11.50 would be the two-year high. And I think we could break through that uh, next week. But this shows me that, again, the euphoria... Uh, with respect to the dollar in the U.S. economy, is not universally shared. Because if people really were this optimistic on the dollar, gold would be going down. The fact that gold outperformed the dollar, right, because gold was up in dollar terms this week, even as the dollar was up against other currencies, but it means that gold was more attractive than the dollar, more appealing to the dollar than the dollar, because obviously people made more money in gold than they did in dollars, no matter which country you're from. So, again, I think that this shows there's a lot of support, a lot of strength in the gold market that people don't appreciate. In fact, commodities in general, crude oil finished the week on a positive note. It was up about 90 cents, 51, uh, 70 or so. Uh, It had a volatile week. It did get as high as 54 again, uh, but then got sold down. But buying came in and we're still holding above 50. So, again, oil was up on the week, even though the dollar was up, meaning that in terms of other currencies, uh, the price of oil was was even firmer. So I think that this is a good indication to me that really we're putting in this solid bottom in the gold market. Nobody's really talking about it. Nobody really expects it's being made because everybody is still so hopelessly optimistic, foolishly optimistic on the U.S. economy and on the dollar that they're not really noticing uh, the solid bottom that is being formed in the price of gold. And I think we're probably also forming a bottom in oil, though the gold bottom obviously is much more solid because we've been forming this bottom for an extended period of time here with massive support below the 1200 level. And now again, we're we're back above it. So again, the ability of gold to strengthen in a weak dollar, in a strong dollar environment, is a very positive sign because if gold can be strong when the dollar is strong, then it's really going to be strong when the dollar is weak, which ultimately is the future that awaits the dollar as the speculators who've been betting on it wake up to reality and realize that their their bad bets are no good. But traders are continuing to make bullish dollar bets despite the fact that more and more weak economic data continues to pour in. And I'm going to get into some of that data in this podcast, this is the data that's come out since my last podcast on the economy and the markets, which I did on on Monday. But it seems that traders are willing to throw out the first quarter. It's kind of like a mulligan in golf. It doesn't really matter how bad it is because all the bad economic data can be excused. It can be blamed on one thing or the other, whether it's the weather or the strong dollar, or the port strike. But, you know, it's always something. And as I said before, if you're blaming it on the strong dollar and you expect the dollar to get stronger, well, then that drag is going to continue. Obviously, the weather is going to change and the port strike ends, but some other strike begins. I mean, there's always something that you can blame uh, the weakness on. But the weather is a perennial excuse. But I don't think it's going to fly this time because, and I've said this before, We did have a big bounce back in Q3 and Q4 last year, coming off a very weak uh, first quarter, but you had some special circumstances that are not going to be repeated. One is Obamacare, 
right? We're not going to get this big uh, rush of people to sign up for Obamacare because they've already signed up. Also, it was the inventory bill. And we're not going to get that. I mean, we're not going to get a big build in inventories for reasons, again, that I'm going to get to later in this podcast, because I'm going to I'm going to take over the economic data uh, based on when it came out. And I'm going to get to some of the data that's going to it's going to um, weigh or, or on inventories. But clearly, clearly, companies are not going to be stocking up on inventories like they did last year. So. Everybody who's counting on a big rebound in the second and third quarter is betting it all on the consumer. They're putting all their money uh, on the consumer and they're going for broke. The problem is the consumer is broke. And if you're betting on the consumer, you are going to lose. But let's go and take a look at the economic data that came out. First, you know, let's look at consumer credit because that number came out on Tuesday while we're talking about the consumer and a very interesting thing is happening with consumer credit. Revolving credit, which is credit cards, right? That's the consumer buying stuff using a credit card, which is how most consumers buy stuff because they don't have any income. They have no savings. They got a lousy job. So if they want something, chances are they're putting it on the plastic. Well, revolving credit in February tumbled by $3.7 billion. That's the biggest monthly decline since December of 2010. So huge drop in consumers willing to buy things using credit cards, which long term, yeah, this is good. We want consumers to stop recklessly buying things they can't afford, except that's not what the Fed wants them to do. That's not what Wall Street, everybody else is counting on consumers buying stuff, even though they're already broke. They want consumers ratcheting up more debt because they're betting everything on a consumer-led recovery. Well, how is the consumer going to lead the so-called recovery if he keeps his credit card in his wallet? Because we know he doesn't have any cash in there. So the ability to spend is the ability or willingness to borrow, and that's not happening. So that's a big drop. But also, look at the other side of the coin, non-revolving credit. And this is almost all uh, automobile loans and student loans. That surged $19.2 billion. That's the biggest monthly jump since 2011. Why is this happening? Well, most of it is in the student loans, which are now direct obligations of the U.S. government, where the U.S. government loans money to students. But students are taking on all this debt. That puts them in a weaker position to consume because they've got so much debt related to getting a college degree. And, of course, I believe a lot of these loans are going to people who don't even want the college degree. They don't want the education. They want the money. But the only way to get the money is to enroll in some college. So they enroll in college so they can borrow a bunch of money that they can never repay. So these debts are going up. Meanwhile, the more money you borrow to get a worthless degree or the more money you sink into an overpriced car that you really can't afford, the less money you have available to spend other places, which is what you're seeing. And maybe some American consumers are waking up to the fact that they're so broke that they don't want to dig themselves in an even deeper hole by using their credit cards. Yet somehow, uh, Wall Street believes that all this is going to end when the temperature rises, that consumers are going to whip out these credit cards, dust off the cobwebs, and just go on a shopping frenzy in April, May, and, and June. And I don't think there's a prayer a prayer of this happening. You know, there's I read a, actually a decent article about these student loans and how the government so underreports the problem 
Because when the government tries to report on, you know, the status of their student loan program and they say, well, this is our default rate, which is already huge. But the people who are in forbearance, like if you have a period of time where you don't have to pay because you have a hardship or because you're still in school or because you're unemployed, that doesn't count as you being in default. So if you can convince the government to you know, give you a period of forbearance then that doesn't go against their default rate. But obviously, the people who are not making payments are not doing so because they can't afford it. So you should really add to the to the default rate the number of people who are not making payments because the government told them they didn't have to, because those guys are really in default too. And of course, when the government tries to report on the potential solvency, they don't factor in what happens when interest rates go up, because these student loans are at very, very low interest rates. And if interest rates go up and they're locked in, the government takes a huge loss on these loans. And of course, they're also not factoring in all the like the likelihood that the loans will get forgiven, <clears throat> because as they make it easier and easier uh, to have your loan forgiven, more and more people want their loans forgiven. In fact, people start arranging their f- affairs to put themselves in a better position. In fact, now you have a lot of people you know, borrowing a lot of money to get fancy degrees, and they intend to go work for the government for 10 years so they can get their loans forgiven, in which case the uh, taxpayer gets hit qu- twice. First, when he has to you know, shell out the money for an overpriced degree, and second, when we have to pay the overeducated employee to work for the government because we have to pay the salary and the tuition. So we get we get we get hit we get hit twice. Then on Wednesday, we got the release of the FOMC minutes. And these minutes may have encouraged or emboldened some of the dollar speculators because at the FOMC meeting, uh, the minutes show that there were discussions about raising rates in June that some members and some can mean just one thought that the Fed should start raising rates as early as June. Sure, of course, they're always going to talk about raising rates. They're just not going to do it. But there were other FOMC members who said, no, 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 we can't raise them in June. Maybe we should raise them in September. There are others that probably don't want to raise them at all. But the fact that they were talking about raising them in June was enough to get the traders to buy the dollar. But they still don't understand. This is all theater. This is all a show. They have to talk about raising rates to maintain the pretense that they're actually going to do it. They got to pretend they're thinking about it. They can't not talk about it. They can't let the cat out of the bag. So this is part of the show. They keep talking about raising rates. Meanwhile, they don't actually do it because they can't. But they don't want to admit that. But the amazing thing is that the currency traders still haven't figured it out. They still want to play this game. And for them, they might as well pay it, play it because they keep getting paid. Because everybody is just pushing this trade based on talk, based on Fed speak. And this is the way the game is going to be played until it falls apart. And I think a lot of people are going to get buried when this market turns, and it's going to take no prisoners. When you get this turn in the Forex markets, I think the dollar is going to fall off the edge of a cliff, and you're going to see a lot of people losing a lot of money. But for now, they don't care. Uh, they're, they're, They're making money, and it's fine. It's like a game of musical chairs. But the music is going to stop, and very few people are going to be left sitting in a chair Most of them are going to be left uh, swinging in a breeze. Now, on Thursday, we got the release of wholesale trade. And this should be a very disturbing number, again, for people who are betting on a recovery in GDP. Now, remember, I talked about on this podcast last month, January, wholesale trade plunged by the most in six years. Well, in February, the decline wasn't as big, but it was a decline again. After a huge decline in January, we declined again in 
in February. And so now wholesale trade has declined for three consecutive months. And that hasn't happened since 2008. So you had the biggest decline in a wholesale trade since June of 2009 last month. And we're down again. And so now we have the biggest decline uh, or the first three-month decline since the 2008 financial crisis. But it gets worse. Inventories rose slightly because of the big decline in sales. So not because companies ordered more inventory. It's just because they didn't sell very much. Uh, So the inventory levels um, are higher than people thought. But inventory to sales, which is a very important ratio, came in at 1.29, which is the highest inventory to sales uh, ratio since 2008 financial crisis days. And what does this mean? Again, it means that uh, factories or wholesalers, right, they have a lot of inventory relative to what their sales are, which means they're not selling a lot, but it also means they don't need any more inventory because their inventory is just rising relative to their sales, and so they don't have any need for any more. And remember, I said earlier, what saved GDP in 2014 was the rush to build inventory in anticipation of a big recovery. And what I was saying at the time was that the companies that were building up on inventory were making a mistake. They were reading the tea leaves wrong. They were believing all the hype about a recovery that was not going to materialize, that was going to end up being a a mirage in the desert. And as we got closer and closer to the mirage, we see it for what it is. And so now these companies realize that they've loaded up on inventory that they can't sell. And so they're not going to be building up inventories like they did last year. They've already got a glut. And so the wholesale trade numbers uh, really, really show that. The bottom line here is that all of the economic data that came out during the week, A, shows that the first quarter continues to be weak. But for everybody who's willing to just throw out the first quarter as if it doesn't matter because everything is going to change in the second quarter, the data that is coming out in the first quarter doesn't bode very well for the second quarter. So it's all a bunch of wishful thinking. But nobody cares. I'm just very interested to find out what the excuses are going to be in the second quarter when the numbers come out weak yet again. Meantime, I also found out this week that uh, Ben Bernanke's memoirs are coming out, uh, and he had the audacity uh, to title his book, The Courage to Act. Courage to Act. Well, I could suggest a far more appropriate title. How about A Coward's Way Out? That, that's my suggestion. You know, when the bookstores stock Ben Bernanke's book, they better put it in the fiction section where it belongs. I don't want it to be in nonfiction because it's a complete work of fiction. And I think it's very interesting that he feels compelled to write a book vindicating himself. Let somebody else do that. I mean, this is a very insecure guy who feels that he has to flatter himself. He has to justify uh, his role in history. Why not let historians do that? Why not let somebody else write a book about whether or not you got it right or got it wrong? Why do you have to brag about how courageous you were and, 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 and how right you were? And the, you know, the verdict isn't in yet. The game ain't over. Right. The Fed hasn't raised interest rates. They haven't shrunk their balance sheet. It is far too early to write a book on how right you were. Wait another 10 years and see how it all plays out before you claim credit.
I mean, it might be interesting if the, the wheels come off the bus even before this ridiculous work of fiction comes out. But there is nothing courageous about taking the coward's way out. The courageous thing to do would have been to allow uh, banks to fail, to allow the economy to restructure, to have the courage to keep interest rates high, to resist the calls uh, to bail people out and to stimulate the economy, to act like a real independent central banker that cared about the country and that was going to put the country's interest above uh, expediency and what was the easier thing to do to be popular at the time. When he says, oh, printing money wasn't popular, it sure as hell was popular. It was only unpopular with people like me. Yes, there were a handful of Tea Party Republicans and hard money guys like me. You know, you got, uh, you know, Jim Rogers, maybe, or... um, Uh, Mark Faber. Yeah, there were some people that were criticizing the Fed, but most people were in full support of the Fed's reckless policies. For Ben Bernanke to say that he did the unpopular thing, that is complete nonsense. He did exactly what was popular. He bowed down to political pressure. He took the easy coward's weight out, and he just printed all this money, bailed everybody out, and now he's talking about what a great success it was. But it is an abysmal failure. He's just still not smart enough to figure it out. Remember, this is the guy who, at the peak of the housing bubble, couldn't see it, had no idea there was a financial crisis, had no idea even a recession was coming as late as early 2008, couldn't have been more wrong, and he still doesn't get it. He still has no idea how bad he screwed up and how badly he screwed up the country. He had no idea that the last financial crisis was coming, and his book is coming out probably on the eve of the next financial crisis, which he still doesn't realize is coming because he's too busy patting himself on the back for what a great job he did putting out the fire that he set. The problem is he didn't put it out. He threw threw gasoline on it, and it's going to come back hotter than ever. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments and hedge funds were buying gold by the ton, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report classic gold scams and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.